All right, everybody, we'll go ahead and get started. There are handouts this week, so uh, if you did not get one, I think there's probably some up on this counter. Uh, there may be, there's some in the back. Mark's got some in the back, so you can grab a handout if that helps. If not, that's fine. Just don't, don't turn it into a paper airplane until later. Let's wait a little while on that. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this time. Um, thank you for uh, just the privilege of being part of your people, um, of having um, a common bond in Christ that you have created, that you have um, given us. And um, we pray that we would honor you with all that we uh, do this morning, that we would be hospitable, welcoming um, to one another, to others uh, that may visit, and that you would be glorified in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, today we have come to the beginning of the end of of our study of the Pentateuch, right? So beginning of the end of our study of the Pentateuch. Uh, Pentateuch, um, first five books, right? That's what we're talking about. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So uh, literally the word means five scrolls. Um, five books, that's good enough for us, right? We use books more than scrolls, so we'll just call it the five books. And uh, who's the author of the Pentateuch? Moses. Moses, right. Yep, so God through Moses gives us the first five books. And um, this is pretty foundational stuff, as we've kind of been saying ever since we uh, undertook to study Genesis, that all this stuff really lays the foundation for the rest of the biblical storyline. In fact, that's what we have. We have a storyline um, when we get the Bible, right? The Bible is not just a bunch of um, proverbial statements. It's not just, it's not a self help improvement book. Um, it's certainly not a bunch of myths. It claims and um, works through history, claims to be history, works through history. Um, so what we see is we see one big storyline as we approach the scripture. So we're going through first five books written by one author, but really the Bible as a, as a whole is 66 books written by 40 different human authors. And yet we have one overarching storyline. So I just remind you of that. So when we're reading this, these aren't just a bunch of random disconnected events or pithy statements or anything like that, right? Or moral tales like Aesop's fables or something. Uh, what we have here is foundational history and the theology that we're supposed to get from it because we have a real God. He, he doesn't just, he, he's not just like a man who decided to write down some wisdom for us, right? Kind of like you get with maybe Buddha or somebody like that. You don't just get a bunch of kind of statements. You get the one true real living God working through history. And in history, we learn things about him where he tells us this is what you're supposed to learn. Right? This is who I am, this is who you are, this is what the biggest issue is, this is what's wrong with the world, this is how it can be made right. Um, that's what we find in the scripture. So, um, the story then, one way we've summarized it, there, there are probably other ways to summarize it, but one way we've summarized it as we've been going through the Pentateuch is the storyline is really a story about um, God, right? Specifically God, but God's people in God's place under God's rule. So remember, you, you see that in Genesis, Right? So what, what happens in Genesis? Uh, turn to Genesis 17. We're going to just kind of catch ourselves up here. We're going to look at previ previously in the Pentateuch, right? That's what we're, we're going to see what happened in prior episodes here. So in Genesis 17, we're going to look at that in a minute. But in creation, uh, in Genesis, the first thing we see is creation. God is owner over all things. It's the first thing we see. So he makes everything. And what's, what's the crowning uh, part of creation, like the kind of the, the high point of creation is, is, yeah, he makes humanity, right? He makes, makes man, and then for man, he forms woman, so we have humanity. We have men, women made in the image of God. So immediately we have God's people. Who are God's people? Adam and Eve, 
That's all we got so far, right? So we have Adam and Eve, our, our God's people. And where are they living? In the garden, right? God's place, and God walks among them, right? He's in the garden with them. So, um, so when we talk about God's place and God's rule, part of what we're saying is God is with his people. And his people are supposed to respond in a way that fits who he is, right? So, so they want to fellowship with him. That's, that's the, the most important, best thing they can experience in life, fellowship with God. Um, so God's people in God's place under God's rule because he's, he's God, they're not. So when he says, I've given you of all these trees to eat, but there's one tree you will not eat, that's a reminder that he's God and they're not, right? That they're submitting to him, that his ways are right and good. He is generous and benevolent. They're trusting him. Uh, but what ends up happening is we have the fall, right? So Genesis 3.15, we find that there is, um, well, before that, we find that they fall into sin, they disobey. But Genesis 3.15 gives us a glimpse of the promise. What's that? We have a serpent, and what's going to happen to the serpent one day? Yes, there's going to be an offspring of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. As you keep going through the storyline, that, that kind of cryptic message becomes more and more clear. We're talking about Satan, the kingdom of darkness, being crushed by the one God's going to send. So the whole beginning of the storyline, my point is from Genesis 3.15 on, what are we looking for? We're looking for the seed of the woman who's going to crush the serpent. That's what we're looking for. So that, this should put, make things make more sense when you start seeing, why does he pick this guy Abraham, right? Or, or for Noah, or even before that, right? Uh, Abel, Seth, right? Why? Because we're looking for this offspring. We've got to trace this line that's going to come, that's specifically going to take care of the Satan, sin, all those problems that enter in at the beginning. So what we have happening is we have this tracing. So look at Genesis 17. We see this promise made to Abraham, verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, so God's talking to Abraham, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. Now look at verse 6. Oh, uh, 17, I'm sorry. Genesis 17, verse 4. And now I'm going to look at verse 6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. So people, right? And kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. So we have God's um, rule, right? To be God to you and to your offspring after you. He's talking about God's rule. And I will give you, verse 8, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So we're talking about, in this case, God's place in the old covenant, right? For an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So, that's what we have happening there in Genesis. We could, we could talk about a lot more themes, but if, if you want more on Genesis, you'll need to go back and listen to those Sunday school classes where we go through the book of Genesis. But that's kind of big picture. Then we go to Exodus. Look at Exodus chapter 4. The storyline really slows down in, by the time you get to Exodus. It zooms in on God's people, and they are where? Where are they living? They're in Egypt, and most of the book of Exodus, I think, really covers about the period of one year. It doesn't cover a ton of time. I mean, the beginning of it does give you more because it gives you Moses' background. So I guess to be fair, you have a bunch of Moses' background, but it, that's condensed into just a few chapters. And then the rest of the book is really pretty much one year where God's going to do all these amazing things. Um, but look at chapter 4, verse 22 through 23. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. So we're looking for the seed and we're being told it's going to come through Israel, right? And I, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn. 
So he says that to Pharaoh. That's what, that's what, well, God is telling Moses to say this to Pharaoh. And um, so what ends up happening? The people stay in, in Egypt enslaved? No. Does Pharaoh let them go? Kind of, sort of, right? He does after God does exactly what he said here. If you will not let my firstborn go, I will kill your firstborn. In other words, we're going to show who's really God. The people are deifying you, Pharaoh, but you are not God. You can't even keep your own son alive. I will get my son, all this people of Israel, out of your possession. And that's what God does. He gets them out, and then he gives them a, his, 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 what we call the Old Covenant. They would not have called it the Old Covenant, right? That was the covenant. Um, but he gives the Mosaic Covenant, the Ten Commandments. And so you see in Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, I'm just going to read those two verses. God spoke all these words saying, and this is, note how he begins this covenant. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, God redeemed them, right? It starts with a relationship out of re- God redeeming a people for himself out of enslavement. And so that's what he does. People are still sinful though. And so we have a problem because if we're going to have God's people in God's place under God's rule, uh, but they continue to sin and fail in obeying God's rule, how's that going to work? He's a holy God. Judgment must fall on them. He cannot dwell among an unholy people. But the blessing, the, the highest joy is that God would be among his people. If he's not going to be among his people, it's all a waste. What are you redeemed? You're not really redeemed, right? God is the best treasure there is. So how's this going to work? Well, enter Leviticus. And you'll remember Leviticus is the center of the Pentateuch, like literally the center, right? There are five books and it's in the middle. It is the center. So we talked about this when we studied Leviticus, but we kind of have a chiastic structure, meaning it's kind of like a sandwich, right? You've got these, these outer pieces and you kind of work your way into the meat in the middle, and so that, that's kind of what you have. So you have, you have Genesis and Deuteronomy on the outside, and then you kind of move in one level, and then you move into Leviticus. Leviticus is at the center, and the center of Leviticus is what? Does anyone remember what the center of Leviticus is? Not so much number chapter-wise, but what's, what is the center point? What's that? The priesthood. Yeah, so the priesthood, and what do the priests do in their central act of what they're going to do? You're right. So we have to have the priesthood, and the priesthood, why? What are they going to do? Sacrificial system. Sacrificial system, right? And the center of the sacrificial system ends up being what? The day of atonement, right? So Leviticus 16 is the center of the Pentateuch. It's the center of Leviticus, the center of Pentateuch. And so we have this idea that what? A substitute must stand in the place of the people, take the sin of the people on itself, and, be, and, and go out into judgment, essentially. Bear the curses that, are, that should fall on them, the righteous judgment of God will fall on this animal in their place. Now, we recognize this is just, uh, in many ways, symbolic. It's, I, say, I shouldn't say just symbolic. I mean, the people have to, by faith, believe God and do what he says. So in that sense, it's more than a, than a symbol. But in, in another sense, it's a symbol because it doesn't actually take away their sins. It's kind of like we've heard before. It's like credit, right? Jesus is going to come and be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So in Leviticus, look at Leviticus 16:21. Leviticus 16:21, or yeah, chapter 16, verse 21 and 22. So Aaron is the high priest. This is Moses' brother. And verse 21 says, And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat. So you see the idea of substitute right? The goat is going to receive the, the sins of the people, even though it did not commit these sins. 
And the priest will then send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all the iniquities on himself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. The idea is outside the camp, away from the place of God where his good presence is dwelling to bless his people, instead into the area of God's judgment. That's where he's going to be taken. Right? So what happens with Jesus? He bears our sins outside the camp, doesn't he? Hebrews says. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So my, my point is, this is, this is just a, a, a preface, like a, a foreshadowing, but it is reality under the Old Covenant. So this is the center of the Pentateuch. Now go to Numbers 14. I know this is all review, but it's important just to remember where we've been because this, this foundational stuff all goes together, right? All these five books go together. So turn to Numbers chapter 14. So the point is, through the sacrificial system, God will, will be able to dwell among his people without destroying them, and they will enjoy the good presence of God as they live through the sacrificial system of drawing near to the Lord, having their sins dealt with, right? Humbling themselves before him. And then, and then enjoying his presence, because we have things like um, some of the incense offerings, the burnt offerings, which point to a very close relationship with God. That's what they're trying to say. I want to be in heaven where you are, right? We want our prayers to ascend to you. Things like that are being pictured in some of those. So in Numbers, the people now, so we have, we have God's people, we, we have something of God's rule, right? We've, we've seen God's people established under Abraham and Israel, and, and now um, something of God's rule as he gives them the law, he gives them the sacrificial system. Well, we still need one more thing. We need to be in God's place, place right? So we're moving that direction. So they, in Numbers, it really is accounting, is taking into account them moving towards the place, all the way up through about middle of Numbers, you're still in that one-year period that I mentioned that starts in Exodus. The rest of Numbers will take us how many years? 40, 40 years, just about, right? Yeah, it'll take us about 40 years. Um, this was not supposed to be a 40-year journey in the sense of when I say supposed to, obviously God is sovereign. What I mean is, if like, according to GPS, right? If they plug this into MapQuest or whatever, do people still use MapQuest? Whatever, anyway. <laughs> If they plug it into Google Maps, I was trying to say something besides Google Maps, right? I'm tired of their, I'm tired of their market dominance. Um, so, no, but, but the idea, yeah, Waze, there you go. Um, if they plugged it in, it, it, this would not have been a 40-year trip, right? So what happens? Well, Numbers 14, 8 through 9. We're going to talk about this part more next week when we get into chapter 1 of Deuteronomy. But it's important to know this now. Joshua and Caleb um, are 12 of the men that are sent to spy out the land. And they come back after spying out the land. And this is what they say, verse 8 of chapter 14. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this, this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. So the rest of the spies brought back a bad report. These guys bring back this report saying, look, God will give it to us. He promised it. Let's go take it. Um, and so what happens? The people end up rebelling, right? They do not obey God. They rebel. Um, and they wander for 40 years in the wilderness until that generation dies out. That's what God says. Uh, look at Numbers 14, 31 through 32. But your little ones who you said would become a prey, in other words, they would be snatched up by the people living in the land, I will bring them in, and they shall know that the, the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness. So this is a sad time, but it's also a reminder that God is going to be faithful to his promises, even if his people are unfaithful. That's what you see happening in Numbers. That's really the theme of Numbers. God is faithful to his promises despite his people's unfaithfulness. He does bring discipline. He does bring judgment. That whole generation is not going to enter the land. The new generation will. And that brings us up to where we're at now, 
which is the people are on the cusp of entering the land. Uh, that entire generation has just about died out. And um, they, have, they have traveled all the way up. Um, I, I couldn't show you the whole area of their traveling, but if you zoom in up there at the top, the plains of Moab, that's where the people are. The people are gathered up there at this point and um, ready to enter the land. And we have almost entirely the new generation there who's going to enter the land. And um, so we need to see there's a crossroads here for Israel. Um, there, there's two major things that are historical events that are around the corner that are about to happen that gives us an explanation for why do we have Deuteronomy. It, it really is to get us ready to go into God's place, but God's people need to be ready to submit to God's rule as they enter the land. And so these two historical events are number one, I just mentioned it, they're about to enter the land of Canaan. They're about to go into the land God promised them. So they need to be ready for that. Second, Moses is going to die out. So the crossroads here is we've been given this covenant. The old generation has died out. We have the chance to now enter the land again. What's going to happen? Is this generation going to be faithful? Well, they need to be reminded of what they need to be faithful to. And also, Moses is the one, humanly speaking, who the old covenant came through. Moses Is, is Moses going to enter the land? No. He's not going to enter the land. He too is going to die outside the land. Does that, are we going to lose the covenant? No. So part of this is transition of leadership and the covenant, right, to the new generation under the new leader, Joshua. That's what we have happening here. So again, we're seeing God's faithfulness put on display. Um, and so in Deuteronomy, we have the covenant that God had made with Israel being preached to the new generation. That's essentially what this is going on in Deuteronomy. That's its place. New generation under a new leader, ready to renew a commitment to the covenant. Now, we're not under the old covenant. Um, we are not the national people of God. The church is the kingdom of God, and the church is not one nation, although it's made up of people from all tribes, tongues, and nations. Um, and so it, there, it's, there's going to be differences in what we read in Deuteronomy as to how we're going to apply it in a new covenant time period, but there's still lots of application to be made. Um, we still are the people of God and we can learn certain things from what we've seen. Um, and, and one thing we, we see is ju just like Moses has to pass on this covenant, he has to preach it earnestly. He has to tell them, look, you need to obey what God says. Look, God is faithful to his promises. God has chosen you to be his people. He's going through all this theology and application for these people. We do, we have to do the same thing every generation, don't we? The gospel, the good news, the new covenant is not something you're just born into and then don't have to be instructed on what it looks like. Because why? We all are born in a state of sin and misery. We are all born into this world, not in the kingdom of God, but as enemies. And so we have to, the gospel has to be preached to every generation. So yes, this starts first and foremost with the children of those who are in the church, but it doesn't stop there because uh, as Paul would say, right, he was a father to many through faith, through sharing the gospel with these people, evangelism. And so we need to be continuing, perpetuating. Because what, if you start assuming that the next generation knows the gospel, you will very quickly lose the gospel. You can't, if anything about anything you start assuming, you lose. I mean, that's true in like safety briefings, right? They keep hammering home the safety things. You get tired of it because maybe you know it by now. But there's someone new who shows up to work that day. They have to be instructed on what this looks like. So it's got to continually be reminded and passed down from generation to generation. 
So today, what we're going to focus on then is introducing us to the last book of the Pentateuch. I, right, all I was trying to do just now was show you um, how it fit into the Pentateuch big picture, how the storyline built, how we have this foundational stuff happening for the rest of the storyline of the Bible. Now we need to talk a little bit about Deuteronomy itself. Um, okay, before we do that, uh, let, let me ask you this. Are there any passages in Deuteronomy or just stories that stand out to you that you think of when you think of the book of Deuteronomy? This is just your chance to, hey, this is what I think of when I think of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter I'll six. Chapter six, okay. What happens in chapter six? Yep. That's right. Yep. Yeah. So chapter six is a pretty big passage in Deuteronomy. It's called the Shema oftentimes, but it's the point is this idea of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? And then it goes on to the importance of obeying God. And then part of that is teaching the next generation the commandments of God, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. The one that stuck out is that my highlighted, um, it's six, verse 18, do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. Yeah, great. Yep. Yep. So we have this idea of obey the covenant. We have the idea of God's promises. Yeah. Not necessarily the exact uh, verses, but I'm re reminded of Christ when he confronted Satan. Yeah. Three times referred to which book? Yeah. He, he extracted from Deuteronomy the weapons to confront Satan and to illustrate for us. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, in fact, I think Deuteronomy, uh, I think I read, is the most the book that was most quoted by Jesus, I think. I might be wrong on that. Um, and it's one of the top ones that's quoted in the New Testament. I think Psalms might be above it, but I'm not sure. I have to go back and look. But it is one of the most quoted books in the New Testament. Let's put it that way. So yeah, that's good. And, and yeah, and you, really, if you look all the way through, through this Pentateuch, you really have Jesus in many ways fulfilling everything that Adam should have done, that Israel should have done, right? And you just see it getting fulfilled. Now, I think God still has his purposes for Israel, but the point is we also see that Jesus is the pinnacle and the savior for all Israel and all Gentiles that will come to him, right? Yeah. I feel like with Exodus, you have, in Leviticus, uh, you have this focus on priesthood. Yeah. And what the Levites, obviously, yeah. are supposed to be doing, but Deuteronomy kind of brings it to the common people. How does yeah. it relate to the law? And also That's good. Into their heart. That's right. Yeah, it's a good way to say the it. The law bringing... It's not just external, it brings the law internal. Right, so so making the law internal into the hearts of the people, not just, uh, this is what the priests are supposed to do, right? It's, it's Here's what you do as common people, yeah. I think there's a real contrast between the way the people respond to Deuteronomy compared to the other ones. Yeah. I mean, they said, you know, for instance, one of the things is, you know, you're going to, the, the, the report for the spies. Yeah. Uh, Joshua doesn't have a report for the whole group, he has a report to him. Yeah. And then he tells them what's going to go on, and then they, they go through this whole sermon and things and talk about, you're going to go and have the two mountains, and you're going to stand on this side yep. and side, and, and they do exactly what they're told. Yeah. So we see the people doing what God tells them this time, through Moses, right? Yeah. Different than what we've seen before, yeah. 
Deuteronomy 8, where uh, he warns them to take care not to forget the Lord. Yes, yeah. He says, 17 through 20, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power and your wealth. Yeah. That he may confirm his covenant that he swore. And he says, If you forget the Lord your God, my brother God's, and serve them, nor so I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish, like the nations who have expressed before you. Yeah. He was really careful to tell them that they were nothing special if they disobeyed him. That's right. That, that he got rid of the other nations, so, so wiped them off. Right. Just to say. Yeah. It tells me God is involved in every nation. Yeah. Not just Israel. He, yep. His eyes on it. Yeah. So yeah, you definitely see this idea of, of obedience to the Lord. You see, you see the, the idea of God's sovereign grace, we would say, right? I mean, that he is, this is grace. It's a gift. He didn't, he didn't save you, Israel, because you're better, bigger, smarter, any of those things, right? And, and so what should grace elicit but a joyful obedience to the Lord, right? Yeah. Um, these verses that we just really read up to eight and nine are the same verses that the Jewish people put in their mezuzah on their door. Mm, yeah. When I'm when I'm trying to evangelize my Jewish relatives, I usually stay in these books. Yeah. And remind them they put this mark on their door frame that yeah they need to be listening to God and praying. Be that's right. Being obedient. Yeah. Yeah. Being obedient to the Lord. Yeah. That's that's even a yeah. You're right. So this is a good place if you're thinking evangelism to Jewish family members, friends. Yeah. Let's do two more and then we'll move on. Yeah. Deuteronomy um, 8, chapter, two, I mean, verse 2, uh, was, um, I think, gives you a real clue or an idea of what's going on in Deuteronomy, what God's purpose is, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, mm. mm-hmm. whether you will keep his commandments or not. That's right. So, I mean, he's giving them that opportunity to see for themselves. That's right. Whether they are truly following him or not. That's right, yep. So, I think this is going to play out. <laughs> yeah. And I think you see that with, with uh, sometimes we try to separate trust and obedience as if they're two totally different things. Really, they're two sides of, of a coin, aren't they? Because if I trust the Lord, would I not want to do what he says? In other words, trust would say, I believe that you are good, wise, powerful. All these things you say about yourself, I believe all that's true. So when you say something, it's not unwise. It's not that it's not good, right? So I'm going to do it. Right, but sometimes it's kind of like we have this idea that it's like, well, I trust the Lord, but don't tell me to do what He says. Really? I mean, it's like your kid being like, "Look, I totally trust you right now, but I'm not going to do what you say." You don't. You don't trust if that's the case. Now, I mean, all of us when we sin, that's exactly what we do, right? So this is. I'm not. I mean, we, we all do this, and so that's why we live a life of repentance and faith, right? God, I'm sorry. Help me. Help me continue to trust you, right? Um, okay. There was one more. Yeah. Uh, help me with this, but it seems like interesting about Deuteronomy is what's not there. Mm. Like they're acting up and being crazy and accidents and killing ripping off to Moses and telling him, well, we don't know how There's no Deuteronomy. There's no corporate acting out. Mm. In Deuteronomy, you're saying there's no corporate like acting out. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah, there's no, yeah, because in Exodus, you have them rebelling, like, while he's getting the Ten Commandments, they're engaging in idol worship, right? And then Numbers, you have constant grumbling and complaining, rebellion of the people. You have rebellion of sons of Korah. I think it's sons of Korah. Um, you, you have, um, yeah, just, mul- even, even uh, Aaron and Miriam rebel to some degree, right? Miriam kind of 
and, and Aaron are kind of like, who made you boss, right? And um, yeah, so you're right. So you don't see that in Deuteronomy, but you see that in the other books. Yeah, that's good. Good. All right, well, well let's keep uh, going on then in Deuteronomy. So the title uh, was given to it that we have in our scriptures comes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Uh, the Hebrew title in the Hebrew Old Testament, so that would go with the Hebrew words, the title they gave it was, these are the words. Uh, they were always super creative with their names. It usually is the first few words of whatever the book is in Hebrew. So they, these are the words. So that's what they called it. These are the words. Um, but that probably actually makes more sense than the Greek title. The Greek title would be literally, um, what is, does anyone know what Deutero means? Second, and then namas, law, right? So second law is the, the Greek idea. And that's from a translation of Deuteronomy 17, 18, where we're told the kings of the Israel are to make themselves a copy of the law. And they translated it as Deuteronomy, a second law. Um, that's a little bit misleading and confusing, I think, though, because we, we don't have a second law. We just have an exposition of the first law. Um, and in, in some senses, really, it's about the call of a new generation to follow the law more so than... Um, a copy of a copying of the law. So I would just say, I mean, Deuteronomy is fine. It's fine to keep using Deuteronomy, but just so you know, that's kind of where the title came from. Um, okay. So um, let's see. We have this crossroads. Oh, and one thing I, I would say by way of application, just the crossroads idea is, you know, um, and th th I'm, I'm making an analogy here. So this is not the main point of Deuteronomy. Okay, so this, I'm going kind of Spurgeon on you. Some, sometimes Spurgeon would give you these analogies that were great, but they don't necessarily always directly tie to the passage. Um, so, you know, we all have crossroads in life where there's some major issue that changes in your life, right? You're going from high school to college or into the full, full workforce where, where you're doing that all the time or getting married or having kids. All these things represent a major change in life. I don't remember how many times they say it. It's once every, forgot how many years they say people tend to have like a major life shift event, right? Is it seven? Is that what you said? Okay, good. See, someone knows the research out there. Um, so you know, we have these transitions. So what I would say is, and this is by way of analogy application, but doesn't it make sense to just um, stop and think about the covenant God has made with us when you approach these life changes? In other words, don't just float into them as if nothing actually is going to change and everything's going to be okay and it's all going to be the same way it was before. Maybe we should stop and, and remind ourselves, like just, just take an hour or so and just think about the promises God's made, the commands God's given, you know, what the new covenant is and think about, okay, what's that going to look like as I move into this new stage, right? We want to draw near to the Lord in his word. Think about how many times you've fallen off the wagon on that, not because you sat down and thought, you know what, God's word isn't important, I'm not going to read it. But life changes. You have, a, you have a baby in the home. You're sleeping like two hours a night or something, right? So it may look totally different, but how am I going to somehow get what I see as part of the covenant relationship I have with the Lord worked into this new stage of life? Okay, so that's my, that's my analogy there. Okay, so um, we have Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5 is um, kind of our kickoff here to the book. I'm still going to give you the theme of the book, and I'm going to give you an outline. Kind of wondering if we should skip some of this here. Come back to it next week. Let's, uh, we're going to put aside Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 5 for now, because we can always come back to that next week. And I think I've kind of given you a lot of, of what I would have said there anyway. Um, 
one thing I will point out is, is what we have here is we have a series of speeches that are being given. I'm going to come back to this in a second, so I don't feel like I need to go too in-depth right now. But we have a series of speeches that are about to be given sermons, and it's specifically going to be from Moses, okay? So we see that it begins by saying in verse 1, this is Deuteronomy 1.1, 1, 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. So Moses is going to speak to the people of Israel, and if you look down at verse, uh, well, verse 3 gives you the time frame in the 40th year. Again, it should not have taken 40 years, but because of their sin, it did. And then, um, where's it at? It says he explained. You guys see that in there? Moses spoke to the people of Israel. I think it's verse 5. Am I right? Verse 5. Beyond the land of the Jordan, Moses, oh, here we go. Moses undertook, verse 5, to explain this law. So right out of the gate, we're being told, what's he doing in Deuteronomy? He is essentially exegeting it. He's making it clear. He's explaining the law for these people as they're about to enter the land. This is what it's going to look like to live out under the covenant of God in the land. And again, it's a crossroads because they're going to face all sorts of things, uh, temptations towards idolatry in the land. That's one of the things he's going to hammer home. When you go in there, there are other nations that you're pushing out. They're not all going to get pushed out at once. There will be a temptation towards idolatry. Do not worship these false gods. Do not marry these foreigners who will entice you to worship their false gods. Right? He's going to continue to hammer those points home. So they really are at a crossroads, and so that's why Moses is going to undertake to explain the law to the people. This is what it looks like when you go into the land to be faithful. So um, the theme of the book, the theme of the book, um, look at Deuteronomy 6. This is going to be one of our, we'll, we'll say this is a theme-type passage for Deuteronomy. So again, he has, there's three sermons essentially in this book. Uh, I wonder where the most interesting places you've ever been or uncomfortable place you've been when you heard a sermon. Maybe after a hurricane sitting in the auditorium without AC or something. So these people are out in the wilderness and they're going to listen to, think about it, all of Deuteronomy talking sermon. That's a long manuscript for a sermon. Right? I don't know how long Rod's manuscripts are, but I don't think they're as long as this. This is a long manuscript. So um, anyway, think about that. Um, I'm not sure what we're supposed to do with that, but just think about it. So, um, so here we go. Uh, there's these three these sermons. Uh, one thing I would say: the theme. What is the theme? Um, the theme is calling this new generation to a new commitment to live as God's covenant people. Um, one of the commentators I read said this. I thought he put it well. He says the renewal of the covenant was undertaken, which is what's hap- that's the theme of Deuteronomy. This renewal of the covenant. It was undertaken not because God changed. So God hasn't changed, even his covenant hasn't changed, but because each covenant had to, re, uh, sorry, each generation had to recommit itself regularly to, um, in love and obedience to the Lord of the covenant. So that's really what's going on. That is the theme. Look at Deuteronomy 1, 1 through 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me, that's Moses, to teach you, Israel that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey." Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. 
and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. So we have this new generation, and what are they being told? Love God and obey him. Keep the covenant, right? And the Lord will bless you in the land, just like he promised. Um, Look at chapter 10, verses 12 through 13. Same idea, or similar idea. So chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? So again, this is the question he's answering. What does God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. That's a rhetorical question. Isn't this what God is asking you to do? The answer is yes. And essentially, he just restates the same thing over and over again there. Love God and obey him. Trust and obey. Right? That's basically what he keeps saying. Now, he does give a bunch of specifics as you keep rolling through Deuteronomy. He's going to give a bunch of specifics of, of what the law is going to look like and its application in the land. But this is big picture stuff right now. Um, chapter 27, verse 9. This is near the end where we're getting the actual renewal of the covenant. The people have heard the sermons about the covenant. They know what God is saying to them. And, and they're being called on to obey it. In chapter 27, verse 9, then Moses and the Levitical priests said to all Israel, keep silence and hear, O Israel, this day you have become the people of the Lord your God. What he means there, he doesn't mean it's the first time Israel is God's people. He's talking to the new generation. You are agreeing to this covenant. You are Israel. You must keep this covenant. That's what he's saying to them. This isn't just, well, mom and dad were Israelites and I can do whatever I want. You are the people of God. You must keep it. Uh, At the end of the final sermon, Moses reminds them of the seriousness of this covenant. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20. So Deuteronomy 30, verses 19 through 20. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them. So, uh, Craigie in his commentary says, Moses' job was to persuade men of the covenant's living force, to call them to love and obedience, and also to warn them of the consequences of falling away from the intimacy of the covenant relationship. So that's the theme. Commit to the Lord, right? Obey the Lord, trust the Lord. It is, a, it is a call to be committed to the Lord. That's really what we have happening in Deuteronomy. So an outline of Deuteronomy, and there are several ways you could outline it. I'm just gonna give you kind of a, a, a more simple version here. So um, let's see, where do I have it? Somewhere on your sheet here, right? <clears throat> do I have it on your sheet? Oh, yes, I do. Outline Deuteronomy. Oh, we're not very far into this handout. Three speeches, um, chapters one through 30. So speech one, looking back at what God has done, that's the first speech. So he's going he's gonna to give them history, good reasons to trust God, reminders of who they are. This should sound a lot like the New Testament, by the way. Even in the New Covenant, you get the same things. Look at what Jesus has done. Remember who you are in Christ, right? And then what? Speech two, the covenant law and the people's need to obey. It's only after we're reminded of who we are that we generally are said, therefore, put off sin, put on righteousness. You see that in the new covenant too. 
Speech three, a call to keep the covenant. And this is really where, this is kind of like in the sermon where you get to the point of the, the application where it's like, now what are you going to do? You've heard this, what are you going to do? Do not be a hearer only, but be a doer. God has called you to do, to obey, really, right? To trust. What are you going to do with what God has said? Then it ends with verses 31, chapter 31 through 34, looking ahead, and that's Moses' last words. Moses is 120 years old at this point, and he is handing over leadership to Joshua. Okay, why study Deuteronomy? First, we see shadows of Jesus. Luke tells us that uh, when Jesus was resurrected, what did he do with the Old Testament? He went back and he showed his disciples where they could see glimpses of him, even in the Old Testament. Right? You remember that in Luke 24 when they're on the road to Emmaus? Um, two shadows I'll point out real quick. One is Moses' role as prophet points us to Jesus. In Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, this is what Moses says. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. Uh, it is him. It is to him you shall listen. You keep reading there, he gives more instructions. And then in verse 18, he says, I will, uh, the Lord says, I will raise up for them another prophet like you from among their brothers, and I'll put my words in his mouth. Obviously, the near fulfillment is God raises up other prophets. That's the near short-term fulfillment. But none of them are the prophet, right? So you get to John 1, and what is, what is Jesus referred to as? You should know this. The word, right? He's the word, and the word was with God and the word was God. And then what does he do? The word becomes flesh, dwelt among us, right? And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Verse 17 of John 1, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We have the prophet, the prophet of the new covenant. Jesus comes. Now he's more than a prophet. That's true. But he's not less than a prophet, Right? You, have, you have people that like some, some Islamic people might say, well, yeah, he's a, he's a prophet. No, no, he is, he's more than a prophet. He's a savior. But let's not forget he is the prophet. That's true too. Um, Craigie comments on this and he says, as Moses was the first prophet in the covenant community founded at Sinai, so Jesus had a prophetic role in the inauguration of the new covenant. Second thing we see of a shadow is that he is the redeemer who will bear our curse. Deuteronomy 27, 26, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. That's interesting. Confirm it by doing it. How many people do it? And how often do we, but other people around us do it? We just affirm, yes, that's God's word. Yes, that's God's word, but we don't do it. Don't you get frustrated with yourself for that? But hey, praise God. We have someone who took the curse for us. Because what does he say? If you, if you don't do it, you're cursed. You are under the wrath and judgment of God. And that's all of us. None of us have done it. And all the people, he says in Deuteronomy 27, shall say amen. In other words, you're saying, I agree. Yes, may God's judgment fall on me. We're agreeing to what? That we deserve judgment. And that's true, whether we agree to it or not, by the way. But it's true. Galatians 3.10, Paul echoes this when he says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. We haven't done that. Deuteronomy 21, 23, cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. What happens in Galatians 3, 13? Christ redeem us from the curse by, uh, of the law. How? By becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus hangs on the tree in our place. So why should you study Deuteronomy? Because it's pointing us ahead towards Jesus. Second reason is 
it 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 functions uh, as a theology textbook in many ways of the old covenant. In a lot of ways, Deuteronomy is kind of like the Romans of the old covenant. Um, if you think about it, in the new covenant, we have the gospels, the, the coming, the bringing of this, the big redemptive act happens. We have the forming of the people of God in Acts. And then we have Romans, which is like the theological textbook. It doesn't mean there's not like it's different or there, you know, there's theology throughout the whole New Testament. I get that. But it really, what does Romans do? It takes this gospel, this new covenant, and, it, and it's the first like just foundational, this is what it's going to look like for you to live as the people of God, right? And it even starts with this idea of, um, of, of things about who God is, um, that, that he is um, the creator, that we are sinful. You think about all those different things you see in Romans 1 and 2. Then it talks about God's sovereign choice of his people and, and, and his saving work through Romans, uh, well, their sin first, Romans 3, but then their sa- saving work all the way through chapter 11. And then chapter 12 switches and gives us what? Therefore, right, present your bodies as living sacrifices, and in a lot of ways, you kind of have that happening with Deuteronomy. It's functioning in a similar way in the Old Covenant of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Because you're going to see the same thing. God's going to say, this is who I am. This is who you are in light of that. Um, and then he's going to give them the, the law and say, uh, remind them, this is what it looks like to live as my people. And then he's going to look future too. And we have that in Romans too, don't we? And say, this is what's going to come. Um, so we want to spend a lot of time in Deuteronomy and we will. I'm just going to point out a couple themes. I'm not going to go through all these and spell them out. You can, in your spare time this afternoon, develop these on your own, but I just want to point them out. The first is we see God's uniqueness. These are, these are three theological themes I think we see that are huge. One is God's uniqueness. So we see passages like this. I'll just read a couple of verses where he says, um, I redeemed you out of Egypt. I did all these plagues before your eyes. And then chapter four, verse 35, he says, to you it was shown Israel, that you might know the Lord is God and there is no other beside him. Verse 39, the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. There is no other. Deuteronomy 32, 39, there is no God besides me. God continually just hammers home his uniqueness in the book of Deuteronomy. There's no one like him. He's in charge. Um, the other thing we see is God's sovereign and loving choice of Israel as his people. Um, uh, Jim, I think you already pointed this out, so I, we don't have to belabor this, but we, we do see it wasn't because of anything they did. It wasn't because of their goodness, right? Deuteronomy 9, 6, know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. And he keeps reminding them how stubborn they were. Instead, we see his grace, chapter 4, verse 37 through 38, because he loved you, sorry, because he loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them. So loving, gracious choice of God, sovereign grace of God is highlighted throughout the book of Deuteronomy. In fact, it's highlighted through the whole Old Testament. You see it over and over again. God is in control, sovereign, and it's, it's grace. It's always a gift. It's never earned or deserved. Um, Deuteronomy 7, 6 through 8 the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. So he specifically chose them. It was a specific choosing. Verse seven, it was not because you were more in number. Verse eight, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping an oath that he swore to your fathers. So it all hinges on God's sovereign electing grace. Final theological point, it is Israel's duty to love and obey God. We already saw that in Deuteronomy six, so I won't belabor that, but we saw it in Deuteronomy six. And then he's going to give a bunch of specific laws in that whole middle section of what that's going to look like. 
Um, I thought this was a good quote from a commentator as we wrap up. But when he starts talking about all these specific laws and what it looks like for Israel to love and obey God, he says this, he, this commentator says, in the modern world, a distinction may often be made between the religious and the secular or the sacred and the profane. To Israel, such a distinction would be artificial. Not because there was no distinction, made because there is i mean think about it in in leviticus he makes distinctions between clean and unclean right things like that um not because there was no distinction made in the spheres of life within which the law sorry hold on uh, israel's distinction would be artificial not because there was no distinction made in the spheres of life within which the law was operative but because all of life was under the dominion of god the lord of the covenant so that's true for us as well and so what we have is moses giving an urgent um, sermon, series of sermons to Israel as they get ready to go in the land. And his ultimate call is choose life, right? The covenant has come to you. You have a responsibility to respond rightly to this covenant, to all of what God has said to you. So that's the message of Deuteronomy in a nutshell. And we'll start next week, Lord willing, with chapter one. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Um, we do pray that we would be not only hearers, but doers of your word. We thank you for your gracious um, kindness that you've shown to us, even in Christ, as we think of the new covenant that you have brought in, which is um, for our time. It, it, is, it is even superior to the old covenant by your design, that it was all leading to this fulfillment, that those were shadows, real, true shadows, and yet shadows. And so we have the reality. We pray that as we enjoy worshiping you in this reality, that we would give you all the glory this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen.